Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. It's, it's such a um, difference from week to week in here. So I say see you, but you're kind of in shadow tonight. And then there are weeks in which you're just glowing because of the sun that's streaming in through the windows. But it's good to be together. And uh, we're going to be in the Word together in Hebrews chapter 5 into chapter 6 today, continuing where we left off with uh, what Pastor Reuben preached on last week earlier in chapter 5. Before we do that, I want to take a moment to pray for our church family our extended church family over at Terra Nova and North Adams. And kind of the impetus for me to choose to pray for them this morning is good stuff. But um, some of you know Pastor Paul Gordon. He's the lead pastor and planter of that church over at Terra Nova and North Adams, which is one of three Terra Nova churches. We, we're just a family that works really well together to resource and encourage one another. Pastor Paul is not only the lead pastor of Terra North Adams, he's also the executive pastor of the Terra Nova Network or Family of Churches. Now, that doesn't mean that he's a pastor or elder here at Terra Nova, um, but the Terra Nova Network is kind of a, an entity in and of itself that really exists to, to better serve the local churches. And Paul just has a, a really integral role uh, and has really blessed the three Terra Nova locations through his kind of executive role. And so he's on vacation, uh, has been for the last, I don't know, week or so, and um, has a few more days, I think, with his family. I'm just, I'm grateful for that opportunity he has for his sake. I want to pray for him, pray for Terra North Adams. Uh, Pastor Matt Schwartz is actually over there this morning, our, if you don't know him, our worship and operations pastor. Uh, he's preaching this morning in lieu of Paul uh, on being on vacation. So Would you just join me for a moment in praying for all of the above? Father, we thank you as usual for the chance. Um, We don't want to take it for granted that each week uh, we show up and are able to uh, relatively freely and worship you, to hear your word preached, to receive from you in that way and through the worship in the form of music and through the fellowship and be with the saints together, singing and encouraging one another. Lord, it's like... It's just nourishment to our souls. We need it more than we realize, so we pause to give you thanks for the parts of that we do appreciate and for the parts we know we should more that we don't. Lord, we thank you that uh, there are your people everywhere, our extended family worshiping this morning, and we pray specifically for Terra Nova and North Adams, Lord. May you make your presence known in a powerful way among them this morning, encouraging that congregation um, corporately and individually where they need it. Please bless Pastor Matt as he preaches the word there. I pray your spirit would anoint him, uh, that your word would go forth in power as he preaches and uh, just enter deeply into their hearts. And just bless Pastor Paul and his family as they seek rest and restoration and recreation. Um, And I know that you, we need that as well. We talked about that recently, Lord, your design for Sabbath to be able to um, receive from you and re-enter freshly into the call of serving you. So bless him and his family. And bless our time, Lord. I pray now that you would minister to each of our hearts and to us corporately where we need it through what's probably a timely and sobering yet powerful passage of truth this morning in Hebrews. So guide us by your spirit to receive well your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, As many of you know, I have um, three kids. Everett is 10, uh, my oldest, Dahlia, is 6, and Emmy is 18 months. And all of our kids at one point in time or another have been on a bottle, um, bottle feeding uh, milk. And they've all loved it. And quite honestly, if we didn't show them anything different, 
they probably would, well, they probably wouldn't because eventually they'd wise up to the fact that none of their friends are doing it, but they might still be just drinking milk today. They loved their milk. Um, But eventually we knew as parents we needed to introduce them to solid food, that that was an important next step in their growth and maturation. And, um, and so we did that with, with each, for each of them. And they didn't always like it at first. Emmy's our latest who uh, is eating different solid foods. She's a pretty good eater, uh, but there's some stuff she doesn't like. And so I've, I've learned I need to be around when we're introducing new food. Um, recently I gave her, I think it was uh, kind of corn and beans. I thought it was a safe bet. I walked away for a couple minutes into the kitchen, and when I came back, her tray was empty. And I'm like, oh, man, you're such a good eater. And then I looked down at the floor, and it was all over the floor. Ten minutes later, I had that cleaned up and learned a good lesson. I need to be around to make sure that she is actually taking in the solid food that I'm giving her. There's an analogy here that's relevant this morning for our passage in Hebrews um, for Christian maturity. And the author uses it to identify a problem um, that that he was addressing in this church, most likely in Rome, uh, which was immaturity that he saw. And so there's a, uh, an abrupt departure from the topic that's been at hand. Last week, Pastor Reuben preached on the high priesthood of Christ, introduced this Melchizedek figure. If you're like, is that in English? What did, what did he just say? Don't worry. We'll get back to it um, and unpack in depth this mysterious Melchizedek. Um, but he does this for a couple of reasons. Number one, there are some immediate problems he sees that he needs to address out of love for this congregation. And so this week he begins that. Next week is a really sobering warning, probably the most harsh-sounding sobering warning we come across in Hebrews. So he does it because it's a real issue. He also does it to regain their attention for what's to come continuing to talk about this high priesthood of Christ in the order of Melchizedek because it's really important to their continued growth and they're not going to hear what he has to say about that if they don't first if they're not first confronted with this reality of their immaturity that he sees so that's where we are we're in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 we're going to read through chapter 6 verse 3 this morning it'll be on the screen behind me if you'd like, you can turn to one of the blue Bibles in the, in the pews. It says ESV on the cover. That's the translation, page 1190. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, if you happen to be visiting with us this morning, we would love for you to take that home as a gift. We feel like there's probably not a greater gift that we could give you than God's Word if you don't have a copy, so please take that with you. So page 1190 in the pew Bibles, it'll also be on the screen behind me. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Again, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11 through 6-3. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, 
and of instruction about washings, the laying out of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Our main idea, the main idea that the author is trying to convey today is this, that to be a Christian is to grow in maturity. What the author sees here is that the believers in Rome have stagnated. Perhaps they've even regressed, which seems to be intimated through his wording of, you have become dull of hearing. It's as if they've actually regressed in their journey following Jesus and their maturity. And so the author confronts them with the following principle that they probably would all agree with intellectually, but nonetheless wasn't true for many of them, and that is that maturity as a Christian is not an option. Pressing on to greater maturity with Jesus isn't isn't an option. Some seemed to be content to, we'll use modern terms, put it in spiritual cruise control, or maybe even more modern terms, self-driving mode. I don't know many people who have a self-driving car, but that would take it to a whole other level in terms of you being in a car, but easily able to have your mind drift to other things and not even realize what it is you're doing and where you are. Maybe another analogy that might work for you. Some, some of you have been to college, and uh, so you've had that experience where to graduate in your major, you have to choose some electives to fill that may or may not be directly related to your specific area of study. And so the mindset for many people is to take the classes that will be the easiest so you can get the best grade to kind of bump your GPA um, relative or, or instead of challenging yourself to actually grow and risking an impact to your GPA. Uh, when I was in my undergrad studies at SUNY Fredonia out in western New York, and my sister had this experience too, she was at Potsdam, so maybe it's just a SUNY school thing, there was an intro to music class that seemingly all freshmen elected to take because it was so easy. It was so easy that it was dubbed by the students, clap for credit. I don't know if you remember that. And because basically as long as you could clap and beat with the teacher or fake it till you make it, you would pass the class. Nobody took that class because they were challenging themselves to grow. Everyone took that class because it was an easy A. And so that's what we can sometimes do. I, myself included, I took that class. As Christians, we can do the same. On a, at least on a subconscious level, we can ask ourselves the question, what's the bare minimum that I can do to feel justified in my conscience as a Christian? Versus, man, I just... I want to do whatever it takes to grow closer to Jesus because I know he's my only source of true hope. He's the only source of true joy in this world. He's the only thing that's going to get me through the trials in life. In other words, what can I do to best position myself to grow in my relationship with him and others? Those are two very different heart postures. And it's clear from our passage today that the former heart posture is not even an option for a Christian. Apparently enough time had gone by for the author to be able to look at his, <clears throat> this congregation here and see their stagnation. And he says things like, for by this time you ought to be teachers. And let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and press on to maturity. <clears throat> see, the trajectory of a true Christian by God's design and plan is always one of growth. Spiritual cruise control isn't even an option he gives us. And if we do that, it can lead to a big problem, which we'll see next week as we continue on. 
So the author helps his, he holds up the mirror to his audience here. He helps uh, the church here to self-diagnose and to, to, act, to see, are they spiritually immature Christians? And he does this by giving them four symptoms or signs of their immaturity that he sees in them. And they were that he, he sees that they are poor listeners. He sees they're forgetful. He sees they're unskilled, particularly in the word, and that they lack discernment. And then he also gives us a couple examples of the fruit of maturity that we can anticipate if we're actually growing in Christ, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, I want to look at those four symptoms of immaturity that he addresses. First of all, they were poor listeners. In chapter 5, verse 11, he said, about this, and about this, he, uh, he says, about this, we have much to say. He's talking about the high priesthood of Christ in the order of Melchizedek. And it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. Now, it wasn't hard conceptually, but because of where they were at in their maturity, it's like they were callous to being able to hear deeper things about Jesus that would be for their good. That phrase here, dull of hearing, it can mean disinterested. It can mean spiritually sluggish, spiritually lazy. In other words, not interested and able to hear the truth anymore. Now, there could be a lot of things that cause spiritual dullness, dullness of hearing in the life of a Christian. We're not told expressly in this passage what's going on, but in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we're given some hints that we can draw some implications from. In chapter 6, he talks about how these six, he gives these six basic principles, elementary doctrines of Christianity um, in this list that parallel themes that would have been true of mainline Judaism at the time too, okay? So things like repentance, faith, uh, washings, instructions and washings, which could also be translated baptisms, laying out of hands, resurrection, and judgment. All of those things had their parallel in mainline Judaism. These were Jewish Christians who had converted from Judaism, but there were parallels to all these teachings in mainline Judaism, which they had just come from and converted from. And so there's a possibility here that because of persecution from their fellow Jews, these Christians were trying to remain as Jewish as possible by emphasizing the things that they had in common rather than the differences that existed in those particular doctrines. So in other words, they were perhaps trying to get by with a minimal Christianity so as not to seem so alien to the world around them, particularly to their Jewish friends and relatives. Is that not a temptation for us too, as Christians today? Maybe we've been doing it so long we don't even notice it anymore, blending in with the culture around us, aligning with our culture where it's convenient, diminishing or ignoring scriptures that would make us stand out as weird or alien or seem intolerant or ignorant sounding. I, mean, I can give you some examples of that. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about um, Jewish Christians who were trying to kind of conform as closely as possible to their fellow mainline Jews at the time, well, there's not many Jewish Christians that I know in here. We are more made up of Gentiles here, but our closest parallel in principle would be where we might want to be or be tempted to be conform with our culture, where we might want to minimize what may seem to be too radical or too weird or too intolerant sounding. So here are some examples. Maybe, maybe standing on Scripture as being really inspired and authoritative. We tempted to minimize that because of where that might seem too radical or weird to our culture at large. Manhood and womanhood. 
as things that are fixed and authored by God, that we don't get to determine those, that God has created us in his image as one or the other. Issues surrounding marriage and family. How about Jesus is the only way versus there being multiple ways equally possible to find satisfaction and hope or even salvation? Just think of the the coexist bumper stickers. Yes, we should love our neighbor, whether they're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter, but I think that there's more to it in what that bumper sticker is trying to communicate, that there are, everything is equal. Jesus is not the only way. What about the radical teaching of Jesus? Your life is not your own. Do you know that? Your life's not your own versus what our culture would teach us, that you do you. Where do we find ourselves tempted, maybe even unwittingly, to conform more to that way of living than the one that Jesus calls us to? What about loving your enemies? Man, how radical is that? We know that as Christians that's what we're called to, but do we actually realize functionally where maybe we're not living that way versus more of our, our cultural post, the culture's posture of tolerating only those who agree with you? Where are we maybe tempted to only tolerate or be civil towards those who agree with us? Here's the thing. If we're consumed with trying to find answers that are as palatable as possible to our culture, rather than yielding with a posture of humility to whatever the Bible says, that's what we want to believe, the result will become that we become dull of hearing. Because we've trained ourselves not to hear truth anymore. Why? Well, maybe because it threatens our comfort or our status, or our sense of security, or even our friendships and relationships. But what that's like when we become dull of hearing, we can't receive truth anymore, is it's like living on a cracked and crumbling foundation. Can't build anything on that, especially when the storms of life come, when, when you enter into adversity in this life. Because the thing that will cause us to be able to withstand storms and adversities as Christians is being unashamed of Jesus and his word of righteousness. Because only then, the author says, can we move on to solid food. What is the solid food, by the way? Well, given the context of what's coming next after this section, when he gets right back to the high priesthood of Christ and and the order of Melchizedek, it's knowing Jesus more deeply and intimately for who he is. That is the solid food we can always and will always continue to grow in as we mature as Christians. And you can't do that. I can't do that if you're dull of hearing. And so where that leaves us is vulnerable to spiritual drift or worse, as we'll see next week, if you're not growing in maturity. So this is the first symptom of immaturity, that they were poor listeners. Next he says, he points out that they were forgetful as another symptom of their immaturity. In verse 12 of chapter 5, for though by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers, You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God, the scriptures, the Bible. You need milk, not solid food, he says. See, when you're dull of hearing, not only is it hard to absorb new information, you start to forget the things that you've already been taught and need to be taught them over and over again. I learned uh, many things in my elementary school years. Some of those things I remember, some of those things I don't. Uh, as I thought about it this week, I think there's at least two things that account for that. Number one, I would say, for the things that I remember, it had to do with the following two things. One, interest level. The things that really interested with me stuck with me. Now, I had a lot of interests, but some went, I went more deep with than others. I probably went deepest with recess because there was sports involved. 
And that played out. By the time I was a graduating senior, probably the thing I was most skilled in uh, was the three sports that I played in high school because it interested me. And it's interesting because, you know, now, 41 years old, I'll go back and play some of those sports, and while the body doesn't work as well as it used to, it's amazing how muscle memory works. Like my form, you know, whether it's tennis or basketball, not so much soccer. That's just, as a 6'7 guy, I never was good at that to begin with. The the form is still there. I remember it now. My body internally has remembered it because it was something I had a vested interest in when I was younger. The other reason I think I've remembered things is from repeated use. Maybe there's a similarity there, but hear me out. Even the things that didn't necessarily interest me when I was in elementary school, if I used them over and over, I became fluent in them. So I'll use the ABCs as an example. I didn't have a vested interest in the ABCs. I didn't care about the ABCs. But they were so fundamental and important to everything else when it came to reading and writing that I would apply and use those letters over and over again. And now I couldn't forget them if I wanted to. So the things that I remember had to do with the things I was uh, invested in, interested in, and the things that I used repeatedly. Here the author uses the, the word for basic, uh, the word he uses for basic principles in verse 12 was actually used in the ancient culture in an educational context to refer to the ABCs. And yet, in chapter 6, verse 1, these are also referred to as a foundation, but the author goes on to say this. He says, We're to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and the rest of the six examples that he goes on to give. So the question is, uh, does that mean then that the basics, the ABCs, are unimportant? And the answer is no. They're foundational. The foundation wasn't the problem. It was the fact that they weren't moving on and building upon that. See, we never leave behind the basics of what it means to be a Christian and the gospel, but part of what it means to mature is to build upon those things. Foundations are essential. If you lay a foundation for a house and you don't build upon it for 5, 10, 20 years. Something's wrong with that, right? It's just sitting there. Maybe a more apt analogy would be if you build a foundation and you wait a year and you've not built anything and you forgot you built it and so you lay another foundation somewhere else and then another a year later and you do that for 5, 10, 20 years. None of us here would say that that is good stewardship of time or resources, right? That we would say something is seriously wrong here. Uh, You'd have to be pretty forgetful to be doing that. So another symptom that the author gives here of of immaturity, spiritual immaturity, is forgetfulness. In other words, needing to be taught the same basic things over and over again. Okay? Thirdly, he says that they were unskilled. In verse 13, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. It helps to understand sometimes a little of the nuance of what the original language is saying. That word unskilled there can also mean untried, inexperienced, right? And what it suggests is that the lack of skill he has in mind is linked to a lack of practice on the part of the readers. A lack of practice in what, you may ask? Well, in applying the word of righteousness to our lives. Some debate over what that phrase, word of righteousness, actually means but it's referring to the word of God on some level. We can all agree to that. So what it implies here, hear this. What it implies here is the way that we own the word, the word of righteousness, the way that we truly internalize it is through practicing it. 
applying it, trying it out, especially in contexts of adversity, which is where the author of Hebrews' audience found themselves. Just anecdotally, and I think scripture we can find this is true as well, I just want to say to you, the opportunity you have to internalize, to own God's word, is in direct proportion to the circumstances, to the severity of the circumstances of adversity you're going through. Let me put that differently. If you are in the midst of a trial, a difficulty, adversity, persecution of some kind in your life, see it as an amazing opportunity for you to take God's truth that he's revealed in his word, put it into practice, and grow in maturity. Relatively speaking, to the other areas of your life where there's relative ease and comfort. It's an opportunity for you to grow in maturity, which ultimately means to grow in intimacy with God. But for the recipients of this letter, it seems that they may have been backing down from applying the word in situations where it may have threatened their security in some way. And without application, we don't become skilled in the word of righteousness. Okay? So that's the third symptom of immaturity. And then the fourth is that they lacked discernment. This comes from chapter 5, verse 14. Here the author says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so here we're given a contrast to the immature person. Here the author paints a picture of what happens on the other end of putting into practice the word of righteousness over and over again, which is that we learn to discern the difference between right and wrong, between good and evil. So a lack of clarity to distinguish the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, is attributed here to immaturity as a Christian. Now, understand, they probably didn't see that, right? They probably didn't think of themselves as lacking discernment, as unable to tell the difference between right and wrong, good and evil. See, the person who lacks discernment isn't sitting around fretting over their inability to make a good decision in whatever circumstance they find themselves in. They just make a bad decision and they think it's a good one. That's lack of discernment, okay? It's a little bit like those in Isaiah chapter 5 that the prophet confronts for calling evil good and good evil, but they didn't see that. They needed to have that confronted from an outside source. So the one who remains an infant, maturity-wise, lacks the discernment to distinguish between right and wrong. So these are four symptoms of immaturity that the author gives, that they were poor listeners, they were forgetful, they were unskilled in the word, and that they lacked discernment. Now from those same four verses, we can also pull out two different signs of maturity that the author gives. And it's, it's worth mentioning those here for a moment. Go back to verse 12. And the first of those signs of maturity that the author gives is he said the mature will be able to teach others. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers. As we mature, we should be moving beyond that infant or milk stage where we're not just taking and taking and taking, but we're also starting to give. Infants, even toddlers, just take. Right? They're completely dependent upon us as parents. And we don't, we don't fault them for it, but they also certainly don't contribute to the family uh, in practical ways to the family's flourishing, like doing the dishes or taking out the trash or you know, doing yard work or helping pay the bills. And it's not a problem when they're infants. But it is a problem if they become adult, adults or even adolescents. 
And some of those things aren't starting to happen in their life. It can be the same thing within the church. New believers, generally speaking, you're you're expected to receive, especially when it comes to the truth and learning what the truth means. Yes, you should be serving. That's a part of how you'll grow. But in this realm of teaching, you're expected to mostly receive. But if you've been a Christian for 10, 20 years, and that's still all you're doing is receiving, you're still primarily a consumer, that's a problem. It means you haven't grown. And here the author identifies one key area that's a sign if you're maturing, and that is moving from a student only to a teacher. Listen, as humans, we long for meaning and purpose universally, right? Well, here's a place where God gives us a glimpse into part of our purpose. One of God's purposes for you in Christ is that he has intended for you to mature in order to make him known to others, in order to instruct others in the way of Jesus. It's not an option. It's a fruit of the evidence, uh, of evidence in the life of somebody who's maturing in Christ. Now, we don't all need to be seminary professors or pastors or even teach a Bible study at church. As you mature, your ability to teach will show up in some form or another, even if in more organic ways. There's a passage in the Old Testament known as the Shema, um, which expresses kind of the heart of Judaism. It's the centerpiece of Jewish life and culture, and for that matter, the centerpiece of Christian life and culture. I want to read it to you because I think this is perhaps what it looks like to move into the realm of being a teacher in its most healthy form. Deuteronomy 6, 5 to 7 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. What does it look like if we've internalized the word of God, if we're moving on in maturity and beginning to teach? Verse 7, You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Maybe the greatest evidence of us growing in our maturity, evidenced through being able to teach others, as, as, is when we are doing that as we go, as we are living our lives. We are able to make the connection between the truth of God's word, the circumstances of not even just our lives, but the lives of those around us, and bring God's word to bear on those circumstances, and teach people how to see Jesus in the midst of what they are going through. You don't have to be gifted as a teacher to be teaching other people about Jesus. And this is one of the evidences of maturity, that you're able to teach others. And then the second one is actually related to the first. It's kind of the flip side of the same coin, or maybe even what we would say would fuel the ability to teach others. And that is, he he talks about how the mature possesses a biblical mindset. Again, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. An evidence of maturity, then, is that you are able to make right choices when you're confronted by difficult circumstances or decisions in your life. In short, we could say this. An evidence of maturity is that you're able to think biblically. By the way, that's different than just knowing a lot of scripture. Knowing vast quantities of God's word means nothing if you've not learned how to live your life in light of it. And the way that we learn how to live our life in light of God's word is by putting it into practice again and again and again. 
In Philippians 4, verse 9, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament is addressing the church at Philippi, and this is what he has to say to them later in that letter. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you, which is just another way of saying you will know your God more intimately. You will know his presence more fully with you. You will be more mature and more like him as a result. There's a principle there. And in many other places in Scripture, as you read God's Word, that is this. That understanding the heart of God, being able to discern right from wrong, comes not just from knowing the words of Scripture, but living in light of them. Putting them into practice. And especially in the moments where it's going to cost you something. Which was probably the case for the author's audience. And the more that you do this, the more God shapes in you a biblical lens through which you live your life. Make your choices. You see, true maturity doesn't just look like going to the Bible to find answers every time you have a decision to make like you would an instruction manual. We never stop reading the Bible. I don't want to stop reading the Bible. But true maturity is when the Bible begins to calibrate the compass of your heart. It begins to shape your heart to think like God, to be more like him, which is what is meant here by the mature having the powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. That's where we want to get. Where we want to get is not having to go from scratch every time we have to make a decision to the Bible or Google our question and see what scriptures it points us to that we've probably read 10 times before and be reminded. I mean, guilty is charged. I'll do that sometimes. But where we all are aspiring to be as we grow in maturity is to actually be able to make those decisions in light of what has been internalized in light of where God's word has been hidden in your heart. That's where we want to go. Where our decisions are more informed by knowing the heart of God because we're more one with him. That's where we want to be. One practical caution on this subject, by the way, I think it's possible for all of us to sometimes mistake natural gifts in the word world. Things like leadership and charisma and a good intellect and being driven and successful or an influencer or a good communicator. The list could go on of these great traits, but it'd be easy for us to mistake those things as making for the makings for spiritual maturity. And then assuming that these people who have those characteristics in the world would make good leaders in the church. Now that's sometimes true, but that's only true if a person with any of those qualities also possesses the one measure marker given here. Which is this. Does this person think biblically? Are they grounded in the word as they make their daily decisions in life? When problems and difficulties arrive, is their life governed by the principles of scripture? That's the measure marker of maturity of a a godly person that the author gives here. That he wants for those who are in Rome in this church. From there, he goes on to exhort them to press on to maturity But to do so with humility. This is important. It's an interesting place where we'll end today in verse 3. Because of the call to press on to maturity, to grow. Because that involves diligence in trying to uh, apply the word of righteousness in daily life. Which implies spiritual disciplines and obedience to God. Things that we do. The author gives a healthy dose of humility for us. He says... 
Here are the things we do, right? Let us leave the elementary doctrines, press on to maturity, become skilled in the word of righteousness, and so cultivate powers of the ability to discern right from wrong. Do these things. And then chapter 6, verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. What do you do with that? See, your your sanctification, your growth, and mine aren't ultimately in our hands. Genuine growth comes from God. And we need to remain humble and dependent upon him for it. This is a principle that is pervasive throughout scripture. But because of mankind's default sin that we saw from the beginning in the garden of pride, it's so easy for us to forget this. I'll give you a couple examples. Apostle Paul, once again, in, in Uh, To the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 3, he says this, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He's not talking about agriculture here, by the way. He's talking about ministry and spiritual maturity. In Philippians 2, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be obedient. Do the spiritual disciplines. Put into practice the word of righteousness, right? For it is God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this we will do if God permits. There it is. Do you believe this? Or do you believe that maturity is solely in your hands? That your effort alone will be what it takes to yield true maturity. Listen, the Pharisees believed this, and Jesus confronted them by saying that their father was the devil. So we don't want to believe that same lie. Finally, to be a Christian is to grow in maturity, right? And so maturity for a Christian is not an option. So the author calls us to press onto it with humility, but why? In closing, two brief reasons. Number one, when we grow, when we mature, There's true joy to be had that cannot be found any other way in the true source of joy, which is Jesus Christ. Even, by the way, when you are in the midst of suffering. Um, In the mold of kind of the theme of this series of better than, Jesus is better. We've talked about that from the beginning. The, The better than today was that Jesus is the better motivation. Why is he the better motivation? He's the better motivation to to mature and to grow better than... Better than, you know, what other people think about us. Do they see us as mature or not? Better than because it will make me successful. He's the better motivation because in maturing, we get to know him more. And we get that joy that will sustain you through any of life's circumstances. Okay? So that's one of the reasons why we seek to grow. But the other one is perhaps even more uh, rooted and tied to the author's heart and what's to come next week. And that is that prolonged immaturity may in fact lead to apostasy. Apostasy just being a rejection of Jesus with no way back. Because here's what happens. If you're not growing, if you're in a state of prolonged immaturity, you can be more easily deceived. You'll have trouble distinguishing good from evil. You'll have trouble distinguishing true sources of what's going to make you happy from the false sources, the imposters, the counterfeits. And when we continually mistake evil for good, when we continue to mistake trash for, tre- uh, trash for treasure, eventually when push comes to shove, we may abandon the faith altogether. That's where the author is going. That's why this 
admonition, this exhortation is so sobering, sobering here. So to endure in the Christian life, we must press on to maturity, he says. Because as we've been saying throughout this series, here it is again, this theme, it's only as we see Jesus more clearly, it's only as we more deeply understand what he's done for us that we will persevere in the life of following after Jesus, okay? Let's pray and ask God once again for help in doing that. God of grace, we come to you seeking that this morning. Your help for things we don't deserve and your forgiveness for things that we need forgiveness for. One of those, Lord, is admittedly a disinterest at times um, in your word, in the solid food that you offer us about who you are. And sometimes that's because of the pressures of the world around us. Please forgive us for that, Lord. Give us strength and courage to walk in obedience to you. Lord, for some this morning, they find themselves in the midst of trials and adversity. Uh, Maybe it's not even circumstantial. Maybe it's internal. Um, Maybe it's emotional. Uh, Maybe it's anxiety. Uh, Maybe it's physical pain. Oh, Lord, would you, by your spirit, grant them the perspective that there is a greater opportunity for growth and intimacy with you through trusting you, through putting into practice the word of righteousness right now. And whatever it is you're calling them to do or however it is you're calling them to trust you in the midst of this adversity. Lord, I pray that you would help form in us a biblical mindset, which is more we know than just memorizing your word, though it starts there. It's internalizing it. It's having our heart not just filled with knowledge about you, but knowing you personally and then operating out of the heart of God and making our decisions. That's what we want, Lord. Would you shape this church individually and corporately to be a church that reflects your heart and that is able to live our daily lives um, as the Shema calls us to? We're constantly living life through the lens of right and wrong according to you. Lord, I pray that you would guard us against the pressures of the world, guard us against the enemy of God and man um, as, uh, as there is that pressure to leave Jesus, to forsake him. And I pray that you would open our eyes ultimately to see Jesus as the greater motivation, the better motivation, because only he can offer the true source of joy that we all inwardly, deeply long for. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen.